going to dive into a couple of things that maybe you're not used to hearing. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of explain that, but I also want you to understand that I've been doing a lot of research and study and whatnot, so don't give me credit for any of this stuff. Um, it, it's come from other people. I've done a lot of study of a Daniel Joseph um, from Corner Fringe and really have been blessed by that in his Hebrew study. And um, that's really probably the main source of a lot of what I'm going to be talking about. But we are going to do a Bible study. I um, am kind of tired myself of uh, book studies or self-help books or self-help sermons. I, I want the Word of God. I believe that the Word of God is where the power is at. And that when you study that, that's your self-help right there. It isn't going to be you know, some plan or program or whatever that we do. It's going to the Word and letting that Word give you the application because that same scripture verse can have a different application for every one of you in context of scripture, obviously. But I, I've seen that in my life so many times and that's one reason why I wanted to do this study was I just thought, it's sad, I think, but it's hard to find Bible studies. And I don't know if this is any indication of a thirst for it out there or not, but um, I'm not trying to put any church down or anything like that. We've got a number of different churches represented here. I, I'm just trying to say that God's Word is where the power is at. And in the last 15 years or so of my life, one of the things that I have learned is that with a church comes a lot of baggage. And it can be tradition. It can be just culture. It can be family pressure. It can be all kinds of things. And I started to just try to look at Scripture with what Scripture says. And one of the foundational doctrinal, uh, I guess, starting points is this. Scripture interprets Scripture. I talk about it in science all the time with creation. Science doesn't interpret Scripture for me. Scripture is what has to interpret the Scriptures. So just know that that's where I'm coming from. And uh, we're going to look at a lot of different Scriptures. And what I think you're going to find is that I used to read the book, uh, the, the scriptures, and I would see, here's a book of Hebrews, here's a book of Genesis, here's a book of Chronicles, and there are all these separate things, but the more I've begun to study this, the more you get to see it's all one. And whatever you're reading in Hebrews, you're going to see is explained in another book. Whatever you read in Chronicles is going to be explained in another book. Whatever you read in Revelation is explained in another book. And somehow we've gotten in the church a, a way of just kind of, well, what does this mean? I don't know. What do you think? Well, it could be this, could be that. And we just start throwing out ideas and see what sticks on the wall, you know, and uh, that's just not good hermeneutics. It's not a good way to study Scripture. And so that's kind of one of my goals throughout this study is to show you how Scripture interprets this. Um, with that said, let's open up in prayer, and we will get started. 
Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for the people who have uh, come here tonight. And I just pray that you would be here through your word and that you would speak to each and every one of us individually, that we would leave here uh, excited about you. Lord, uh, the more we know you, the more we love you. And so that's what we're here for. Not to, to make ourselves feel better, not to get anything for us, but to be here for you, to know you more. And in that, I know we'll be blessed. So teach us now, reveal yourself through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, one more thing, just kind of a little bit of a disclaimer here as well. Uh, we aren't going to get very far tonight. You know, it's never my favorite to kind of start the first night of a book because there's some background that you need to understand. You need to understand who's the author of this book, who is he writing to, those kinds of things. And so we're going to have to touch on some foundational stuff before we really get into too many of the scripture verses. So we might only cover two verses tonight. We'll see uh, what happens. But uh, part of the other disclaimer is this is I am going to give you some quotes from something called the Apocrypha. Most of you have probably heard what the Apocrypha is, but maybe don't know what it is. You've heard it, but what is it? Well, there, right now in our Bible, it's the canonized, basically meaning that we have 66 books that back in the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, they got together and said, these are the ones we accept as canon. Now, the Council of Nicaea wasn't the whole church. Okay, that was a group of people that were meeting for a completely different reason. We'll maybe talk about that later. There were people who, lots of pastors and, and whatnot, that did not come to the Council of Nicaea. Um, but what I want you to see is that this Apocrypha, for years, even the 1611 King's James, King James Bible here, it's kind of a bad picture, but you'll see it, um, it had all 80 books in it, okay? All 80, and you go, what was, I thought it was 66. Well, they included the Apocrypha. It was uh, first removed in 1885, so not that long ago, okay? Now, I know growing up, when I heard the words Apocrypha, I thought, Catholic, Catholic, that's, you know, uh, okay. I'm not going to be telling you that all of these should be in the Bible or that they should be canonized. What I'm going to show you, though, is that there is some value in these things in a great way. You know, as pastors, all the time, we'll tell you what Josephus said. Who's Josephus? Well, he was a historian that was the time of Christ. Okay, and we think, oh, that's cool. Well, we'll even tell you what Martin Luther said or Charles Wesley Okay. We'll tell you what some other historians or, or other godly men of the past, how they interpreted scripture, what they saw. That's what I'm going to do. When we look at this Apocrypha, if it's lining up with scripture, I'm not going to let it interpret my scripture for me, but when it lines up with it, I think sometimes we can get some little nuggets that help us understand things better and can be very valuable, just like Josephus can be or any of the historians, you know, Pliny the Younger or Herodotus or anything like that, okay? And so uh, we're not going to, I'm not going to try and put this on the level of, of Scripture, even though in 1611 it was put on the level of Scripture, 
All right? And so just know that the Catholic Church today still has the Apocrypha, um, you know, and it is viewed by them as Scripture. Okay? Now, I do have some problems with some of them. I, I'm not saying that they're perfect or anything like that either. I'm just saying that I am going to quote from some of these things. You'll see them, but I just want you to not, like, freak out when you go, oh, what's he doing? Okay? Just know where I'm coming from with it. All right? Well, let's start here with the author of Hebrews, first of all. Who wrote this book? You know, one of the fascinating things to me is we don't know. I, I, I have a, you know, my opinion who it is, and I think it's probably Paul. But just about as many people, you have just about as many opinions as far as who wrote it. Um, but I think you'll see why I think maybe Paul did it. Uh, some say that it was just the Jews that wrote it. Some say Clement of Rome or Tertullian, Barnabas, um, Apollos, some say Timothy. What you're going to see is that um, what's fascinating to me is most of the, the people who they think wrote it were in some way associated with Paul. Okay? Because it has Pauline style to it in the sense of uh, phrases, stuff like that. But when you compare Paul's writings to the book of Hebrews, not even close. It's like reading maybe a, a fourth grade uh, journal and then a professional writer's journal. Hebrews, from a grammatical style, is like way up here. It's extremely like perfect, very educated. And so it doesn't read like Paul, even though there are Pauline phrases in it. And you're going to maybe see kind of why that is. But I'll tell you this, that if you could take and say you're going to go off, you know, into prison or a deserted island or whatever, and you're going to be only be able to take three books with you, as far as the New Testament goes, this would be one of them for me. The book of Romans would be another one for me as well, okay? Very, I mean, that, that's the kind of level I'm going to put this book on, how important this book is, okay? Um, in case you're wondering, Matthew for me too, probably, okay? Anyway, the epistle of Paul, I just want to show you here the King James Version. Um, uh, the original 1611 when you look at it, at the end of chapter 13, it's going to read, I don't know if you can even read it or not here, but I, oh, I guess I forgot that I need to do this for you as well. Um, at the end of chapter 13, there in the red, you're going to see it says, written to the Hebrews from Italy by Timothy. Now, this is not in what we would call the Textus, textus Receptus, the original that the King James Version was copied from. This is basically what the uh, writers of the King James Version thought. They thought back then in 1611 that this was indeed uh, Paul's writings, but Timothy is pretty much the one that wrote it down. Okay. Now, with that said, I want to show you some history 
that tells you maybe who wrote this book. There's a guy named Eusebius, a historian again, and he quotes Clement of Alexandria, who lived around 150 AD. So we're getting somewhat close to the time of Christ here. And he quotes Clement uh, in saying who the author of this book is. It says, he, Clement, says that the epistle to the Hebrews is the work of Paul, that it is written to the Hebrews in the Hebrew language, but that Luke translated it carefully and published it for the Greeks, and hence the same style of expression is found in this epistle and in Acts. So when you look at the book of Acts and you look at Hebrews, it is, Acts is like that too. It's got that very professional grammatical prose and, and whatnot in it. Same thing here with Hebrews. And so that does seem to fit. Now, by the way, he also said it was written in Hebrew. The only other one that we know was written in Hebrew is the book of Matthew. Now, what we have in our Bibles is translated from the Greek. But he's saying it was written in Hebrew. Okay, so what we have has been probably translated and so on. He goes on that Clement says that the works, uh, Paul the Apostle, were probably not prefixed because in sending it to the Hebrews who were prejudiced and suspicious of him, he wisely did not wish to repel them at the very beginning by giving his name. In other words, what he's saying is this. Paul didn't want anybody to know he wrote it. Because, as you're going to see as we go through this book, there is a lot going on. This book, I think, is one of the most powerful, in-your-face, Donald Trump books that you could write. Okay? Uh, you're going to see that here, I mean, immediately out of the gate. Paul was hard to understand, the scriptures say. We know that he was not well-liked by the Jews. And so, Paul would have a good reason... It's kind of the same reason sometimes, you know, I don't like people knowing that I'm coming into town because then nobody will show up, you know. The reputation sometimes goes ahead of you and, and uh, people don't like you. Nobody's going to listen to you. And so Paul, at least what Clement is saying, intentionally hid the authorship because nobody would listen to these words. And he knew that it was going to be so controversial that it would be better just that it be anonymous. Now, it's not entirely anonymous, as you're going to see when we get started here, but you'll see here. Um, Origen says this, then. We're the verbal style of the epistle entitled To the Hebrews is not rude like the language of the Apostle Paul, who acknowledged himself rude in speech, that is, an expression, but that its dictation or diction is pure Greek. Anyone who has the power to discern differences of phraseology will acknowledge. All right, so basically what I was saying before, he's acknowledging that this, the level of writing, matches something like Luke, not Paul. He goes on, and I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights here. If I gave my opinion, I should say that the thoughts are those of the Apostle Paul, but the diction and phraseology are those of someone who remembered the apostolic teachings and wrote down at leisure what had been said by his teacher. All right? So, as far as author goes, I really kind of lean towards Paul. Um, 
based on those things. He kind of goes on and he says this, let it be commended for this, for not without reason have the ancients handed it down as Paul's. So we're back here at the time of Clement and Origen, and he's saying even the ancients said it was Paul. So we're even getting closer to the time of Jesus, and they were saying it was Paul, whoever those ancients were. Okay. Well, let's go to the date uh, of when this thing was written. Typically, you're going to hear that it was from 60 to 68 A.D., sometime before 70 A.D., and the reason for that is because in 70 A.D., the Romans came in and they destroyed Jerusalem. They conquered, the, they took the temple and destroyed the temple. As you're going to see in Hebrews, there's a lot of talk about the temple and the sacrifices and things like that. And so they say it must have been before the destruction of it. I would say that there's a good possibility that it's somewhere between 62 to 64 A.D. that this was written, partly because of persecution. When we get into this book, you're going to see that these people were facing persecution big time. And I'm not talking about the stuff we face today. When we get to chapter 11, I love that chapter, um, you're going to see much more there than what's on the surface. But bottom line is, is we see that um, 62 to 64, it was around 64 AD that we see Nero in Rome. Uh, we hear that he kind of blamed Christians for this fire burning down Rome, basically. And uh, there was a, all kinds of persecution that was going on with, with Nero beginning that. Uh, Diocletian and some of these other Roman emperors where Christians were being burned at the stake, killed in all kinds of ways at this time. And because of the, the persecution that's going on and talking and being talked about in the book of Hebrews, it's a good possibility that that may be. But in my opinion, doesn't matter that much. Okay, so, but for those of you who think that that is important, that's my my answer there. The audience, who is this written to? One of the things I found fascinating in studying this is almost everyone that I would go to, they would say this, the author of this book is writing it to these Christians who were being Judaized. They were the Judaizers. Those that wanted to fall back into legalism and back into the laws and sacrifices and things like that. And he's writing to them to keep them, you know, Christian. Not go back to this Jewish way of life. I don't really think that that's the point of this at all. I'll let you make that decision as we go through this book. You're going to see that I don't think the point was as much to say stop doing this as much as it is let me show you who Jesus is. He's much better than what you have heard about. He's much better than what you're used to. But I don't think it was as much to keep them from going back to their old ways. I'll let you decide, but keep that in mind as we go through this book. 
is that the point of the book of Hebrews, or is that something that once it's out there, everybody just says the same old thing? Okay. Um, as far as its legitimacy, um, some people kind of question, is Hebrews, you know, nobody, we don't know who wrote it. Is it legitimate in Scripture? Should it be there? Should it be in our canon? Um, the Eastern Roman Church accepted it way back when, uh, almost really from the beginning, although the Western Roman Church um, did not accept Hebrews as canon at first, but they eventually came around. Part of the reason is there were two groups that rejected this book. One are called the Marcionites. Marcion was a guy from, I don't, I, we'll probably talk about him later, I can't remember what years he lived, but Marcion is an early church father. Eventually he was branded as a heretic, and rightly so, okay? But what he did is, many people don't know it, he came up with the first canon of scripture. And I can't remember how many books he had, I think it was like 13 or something. That's all he had in scripture for, that was inspired in his mind, okay? And he saw that there was this Old Testament God and a New Testament God. So two gods, this old, harsh, you know, mean guy of the Old Testament, and then this loving father of the New Testament. And so he separated those two, which is why he didn't have very many books in his canon. It was kind of viewed as, you know, Old Testament bad, New Testament good attitude. Now, like I said, he was eventually branded as a heretic, but he did affect a lot of church, early church thinking. The other group that had rejected Hebrews was what were called the Arians. And the Arians, also heretical, had, um, they had rejected God's deity, Jesus' deity. He was not God. He was a separate person. Okay? And so we'll maybe talk more about some of those things later, but for now anyway, that gives you some of the ideas of why they were rejected. Um, there's a guy named here, Ellingworth. Don't really know who he is much outside of that he a commentator on scripture and that kind of thing. He says that the manuscript of Hebrews tradition bears witness both to the early inclusion of Hebrews in the Pauline corpse and also to varying assessments of its status. Hebrews is included in collections of Pauline letters from P46 onwards, but in various positions, namely. And I'll read a little more. Let me just explain, what's P46? It is one of the earliest documents that we have of church history, okay, from around 200 AD. And so basically what he is saying is the earliest of churches counted Hebrews as legitimate inerrancy, that it was God's word. He says, Hebrews is placed among the epistles addressed to the churches. It is placed after Romans in P46 in a Syrian canon, and in six minuscules from the 11th century, blah, blah, blah. Hebrews was considered in some areas, especially in Egypt in the 3rd century, as second in importance, and it is second in length to Romans. Now, what's kind of interesting is in these early church periods, it was very common to order the books according to how long they were. The longer ones went first. And what he says is Hebrews was put second, even though Hebrews is not the second longest book. Now, why is that important? He's going to basically say because it was second in importance. Nor normally, 
you know, length, but he says, no, they must have viewed this as an extremely important book, which goes back to what I was saying. If I could have three books of the New Testament, those would be the three that I would take. This is on the top of the list. It's that important, and I think you're going to see why here shortly. Council of Carthage in 397 to 419. There was something called Canon 24. There were all these canons that they did. And um, Canon 24 is where they decided we're closing the book on what should be included in the canonization of Scripture. And they included Hebrews in it. So again, as far back as origin we're seeing, you know, in the P46, we're seeing it here in the 300s and 400s that Hebrews was considered to be there. And so I would say it's a very legitimate book. So with that said, let's jump into Hebrews. All right, so Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 is where we're going to begin. And you're going to see, as I was saying, this is kind of a Donald Trump book. This guy, if it was Paul or whoever it was, was holding back no punches from the moment the pen hit the paper. This would have been one of the most controversial books of all the first century, hands down, to, to a Jew especially. And you will see why. He says, God, and that's as far as I can get without having to talk. You read any of the other epistles, what's amazing is you're going to see, it'll say things like this. Uh, Jude. Okay, Jude starts out with Jude. Because you always wrote your letters saying who this letter is from. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called to be, uh, called to be an apostle by the will of God or whatever in Romans, it starts out. Okay, but this starts out as saying God. This would not have been missed by any first century believer or Jew. What he is saying is, who's the author of this book? God. Okay? So that's how far we got into it before he's already just hitting you right between the eyes with some truth here. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So not only is he saying God wrote this, but he's now saying that he spoke to us through his son. God has a son. Again, a major uh, point of contention in the first century. Can God have a son? Even today, for those of you who went to Israel with us, uh, on the Temple Mount, on the Temple Mount you have this Dome of the Rock, this, it's really not a mosque, but it's called, you know, we often call the mosque, but that big gold dome thing. On it, it, like maybe four or five different places, it says, Allah has no son. Okay, and it, there's other lengthy passages that talk about things and how, how much of a heretic you are if you even try to claim that he had a son. So, again, yeah, we, well, that's Islam. But you have to understand, even to a Jew, which is really who Paul is writing to here, to the Jews, that would have been already like, I'm not reading this. 
you can see why maybe he wouldn't want them to know who wrote it because he's trying to have his, you know, get a point across and he's going to continue doing this all the way through. But it is radical for them to say that. It is the most controversial thing that you'd be able to say. Um, I am, you have New King James Version is what I should have on all of these. I have over a thousand slides, not tonight, okay? <laughs> but over a thousand slides that I have put together for this. And I know that sometimes as I was copying and pasting some of these scriptures in, I noticed, how did it get changed to an NIV or something like that? So maybe you'll miss them. But otherwise, for the most part, it should be New King James that I have up here. All right. Um, John 5:18. I just want to show you some things. How I'm just going to give you a number of scripture verses, and rather than turn to them, I'll just let you look up here. But if you're taking notes, it might be good just to jot these down to kind of get what Paul is saying. Like I said, I'm going to let scripture interpret what Paul's saying here, if it's Paul, of course. John 5:18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. As you read through the New Testament, you will not find a more controversial statement than Jesus claiming to be God or that, he had, that God was his father. Almost every time they want to kill him, stone him, do whatever, it's because of this very statement. And this is how Hebrews is opening up. Okay, that is how controversial this is. Now, by the way, just a little side note. It says, he not only broke the Sabbath, I challenge you to show me where Jesus broke the Sabbath. You will not be able to find a single passage in Scripture where Jesus broke the Sabbath. He only broke the traditions of men on the Sabbath. Only that. Okay, he kept the Sabbath. And one of the fascinating things you'll see is Jesus was very controversial, and he was kind of a, a Donald Trump in some ways, too. Okay, now don't, don't take me wrong here. I'm not saying Donald Trump is Jesus, okay? But what was interesting is, do you remember when he, he healed? I, I talked about this in Israel, but he healed a man's eyes by spitting in the mud, made mud, and then put it on his eyes. Do you know why? Why did he do that? Why didn't he just touch them? Why didn't he do what he always did, just speak it or, you know, go jump in the pool of Bethesda? You know, what? He was ticking them off. He was putting it in their face because in the Talmud, it tells you you can't make mud on the Sabbath. Our guide, even when we were there, showed us in the Talmud. I was telling him, he said, yeah, it's right here. And he showed it to everybody. I'm not making this stuff up. He was doing everything that he could to tell them, you guys have made all these traditions of men. Okay, These aren't my rules. These are your rules. And I'm going to break your rules, but I'm going to keep mine. And so anytime the disciples, when they were walking through the grain fields and they were all upset because your disciples were eating on the Sabbath, harvesting it. No, they weren't. You go back in the Old Testament, it says that you can't put your sickle to the grain. You can't go out and work, but you can eat. Washing their hands. The Pharisees were upset. The disciples were washing their hands. doesn't even say that anywhere in the Old Testament. That was a 
rule of the Pharisees. And so keep in mind what was going on is the Jews here that were unbelievers were saying, you're breaking our rules on the Sabbath and you're claiming to be God. And Jesus was right on both cases. He was not breaking the Sabbath and he was God. He was the Son of God. John 10.30, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, made yourself God. You see, they understood. Today we think, well, he was just calling himself that God was his Father. That was the equivalent of saying you're God. The Jews got that. Oftentimes we miss that today. But the Jews were understanding, no, you're claiming you're God. Blasphemy. John 10, 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? Jesus is quoting Psalm 82 here. When he says, is it not written in your law? Basically, is it not written in Psalm 82, where the question is asked, how long will you judge unjustly, it says in Psalm 82. And they do not know because they do not understand, is the answer in Psalm 82. So maybe go look at that. Again, we are, are myself included, are just ignorant when it comes to the Word of God. We don't know it. Those Jews back in his day knew Scripture forward and backwards. I mean, they would put anybody today to shame. And so when they would bring something up like this, when Jesus would bring it up or anybody else, their mind was already thinking about that passage in you know, whatever it was quoted. So when he's saying, isn't it written in your law, you are God's, Immediately, they'd be thinking Psalm 82, and they're, you know, just, they'd have the context of it. They would know it. And so they would know that it would say, how long will you judge unjustly? They do not know because they do not understand. Okay, Jesus was taking them back to this psalm basically to say, I'm talking about you. You who are un unjustly judging me. You who have no understanding. And that kind of ticked them off too. But, um, again, I'm showing you these things to show you how powerful it is that the author of Hebrews is beginning the way he's beginning. That those, these very few words are the most radical things that you could be saying. John 19.7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. This wasn't kind of a hidden thing. Everybody knew what was going on. So I'm going to read uh, some things here from the Gemara. Uh, what's the Gemara? Uh, it, well, the Gemara is part of the Talmud. What's the Talmud? Uh, the scriptures with a whole lot added. The Talmud is the Jewish religious book. It is the scriptures, and then they have commentary on the scriptures, which is called the Mishnah. And then they have a commentary on the Mishnah, or literally a commentary on the commentary of the Bible. It's called the Gemara. Okay? Really boring to read. But 
some really fascinating nuggets of truth in what was going through their mind as well as things that they saw we don't have a clue about. Okay, let me just give you a couple of examples of things that would be in the Talmud, like in the Mishnah and whatnot, that just sound so ridiculous. Do you know in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, when the Israelites were out there for 40 years wandering, they talk about that there was a stone that followed them everywhere they went through the desert. And you, you know, you read this, and if I could read it to you how they said it, it just sounds ridiculous. And then you go and you start reading in the New Testament, and you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it says that they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink from the, the rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Right there in 1 Corinthians 10, it says that there was a rock that accompanied them throughout the desert, and it was that very rock that they drank from, that water came out. Now, I don't know. You know, in my mind, I can't help picturing this rock dragging itself through the desert sand. And, you know, but maybe it was just that they showed up and the rock was there. Every time they set up camp, there's the rock again. I don't know. All I know is the Talmud. You've got to remember that these people lived this history. And they were very good about keeping records. And so there's a lot of value in the Talmud. Yeah, a lot, many of them missed Christ. But there's historical value in how they saw the Messiah in the Old Testament would absolutely blow your mind. They saw the Messiah in that rock. They saw the Messiah in the fact that Miriam dies before they go in. They see the Messiah in David and in Joseph and in Moses. They see the Messiah everywhere in places the church has never even dreamt to even look for him. And they see him. It's incredible. And so, <clears throat> I have been extremely blessed by learning some of these things in, in how they view things. Give me, I'll give you one other example, too, of maybe understanding things differently. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about the resurrection of the dead. And it says this, if the dead are not raised, why are some being baptized for the dead? Now, can anybody tell me what that means? If the dead are not raised, why are some being baptized for the dead? Now, I know Mormons baptize the dead today, right? Okay, you go, go read all the commentaries, and this is a perfect example of what I've been telling you, how we just take our culture, and I don't know, what do you think? Well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, and we make doctrines out of that. Almost every commentary that you're going to read on 1 Corinthians 15 there, we'll say Paul is probably referring to a pagan custom of the day where pagans baptize their dead. Okay? In other words, Paul is making reference to Satanism to support the resurrection of the dead. That makes no sense. No sense at all that you're going to have Paul quoting demonic works to support his view of the resurrection. I don't, I'm not going to use the, the satanic Bible to support God's word at all. But you see what's happened is we have this idea, and I know this is challenging for some of you, but we have divorced the Old and the New Testament, kind of like what Marcion did. Remember I said he affected the church? He has. 
what happened is we kind of think, all right, Old Testament old, New Testament new. Old bad, new good. Yeah, we still read it. Yeah, we still like it. I don't really want to call it bad, but it really doesn't have much to do with my life. What you don't understand is that the New Testament can't be understood without looking back and having the Old explain it to you. The Old Testament was the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Do you realize that virtually the entire early church, like the apostles or Jesus himself, do you know how they proved that Jesus was the Messiah? From the Old Testament. On the road to Emmaus, he explained to them from the law and the prophets what was written about him. They didn't have the New Testament. All they had was the law and the prophets. And what were they all speaking about? Jesus even tells us. He told the Pharisees, you think that by reading these scriptures that you, know, you have eternal life, but what you don't realize is these are the scriptures that testify about me. Everything in that Old Testament points us to him. Everything. And so when we say, oh, we're going to divorce the old and the new, can you see how already we've got a very wrong foundation to begin with? And so let me go back to 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead aren't raised, why are we being baptized for the dead? What does that mean? Well, let's go to the Old Testament and let it explain it to us. In Numbers chapter 19, it tells us that if you ever touched an unclean thing, touched a dead body or whatever, you became unclean. Now, by the way, it wasn't necessarily sinful to be unclean. You just couldn't you know, go celebrate Passover or things like that. You had to be cleaned. But the point is, is this. If you touch something unclean, you had to go through a ritual mikvah or baptism. That's the, the, the Hebrew for that is, is mikvah. You had to go through this ritual baptism so that you'd be clean again. Do you know that when Jews died, different process than what we do today, um, they will actually handle that dead body, wrap it up, prepare it, you know, put spices on it, do all those kinds of things, carry it to the grave, do all those kind of things. So if your loved one died, you would prepare that body, touching it, becoming unclean. Uh-oh, now what are you going to do? Well, then I guess you need to be mikvahed and go through the exact process Numbers 19 said you were supposed to do. In other words, what Corinthians is saying is if the dead are not raised, if there is no resurrection, why are you touching this dead body and preparing it for the resurrection and having to go through this baptism, this ritual cleansing? Doesn't that now make just complete sense? If the dead aren't raised, why are you being baptized for the sake of the dead? Becoming unclean for their sake to prepare their body for the physical resurrection. Okay? And so that's just an example of how important it is to put the, the old and the new together. You just realize the old is all about Jesus. It's all about Him. Okay? So, Gemara, up here. Oopsie, did I just skip it? I don't know what I keep doing here, but I keep 
There we go. Um, there was this guy named Ahur. Ahur chopped down the saplings and becoming a heretic with regard to him, the verse states, do not let your mouth bring your flesh into guilt. The Gemara poses a question, what was it that led him to heresy? So basically, it's a story here from Orthodox Judaism about this heretic, okay? And you're going to see now that I'm going to introduce you to a guy named Mitatron, um, not, a, not one of the uh, uh, Transformers, <laughs> okay? But in their view, a powerful angel. And he sees the courts of heaven, and now any Jew would know you, you don't sit Okay, and that's going to be kind of one of the strange things here. He says, he saw the angel, Mitatron, who was granted permission to sit and write the merits of Israel. He said, there is a tradition that in the world above there is no sitting, no competition, no turning one's back before him. All face the divine presence and no lethargy. In other words, what he's saying is, if you are in the presence of God, you don't sit. You stand up. You face your creator. I don't know if you've ever seen Jews praying at the Wailing Wall. But what you're going to see is they go and they stand at the Wailing Wall. They don't sit. Well, some will kind of sit to read their books and whatnot. But when they're up there praying and talking to God, they, don't, they, they stand up and their bodies, the Orthodox especially, they're moving back and forth, moving, and they'll be talking. and Sometimes their lips will just be moving. They believe that if you're going to God's presence, every joint, every muscle, every bone, every part of you needs to be involved in this worship, you might say. Okay? And so what they're saying in this Gemara, in the, in the Talmud, is this is a heretic. This heretic is claiming that he saw this powerful, amazing angel sitting. No way. You don't sit. I personally tend to think this historical event may have really happened and that this was legitimate, that God was revealing himself to this Ahur. Because doesn't this sound familiar to you? Who sits in heaven? Jesus. He sits at the right hand of God. Okay? It was a little kid one time, he said uh, that God must do everything with his left hand. And the teacher said, well, why? He says, well, because God's sitting on his right hand. So, <laughs> so my wife saying how bad that was as she's leaving. Yeah. Well, anyway, it goes on here, and it says this. Seeing that someone other than God was seated above, he said, perhaps there are two authorities and there is another source of power and control of the world in addition to God. Such thoughts led a hare to heresy. So a hare sees this and he thinks, maybe there are two authorities. But to the Jew, that is a heresy. No way, that, that's impossible. Well, guys, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is starting to say. He's saying that this Jesus is the Son of God. He is a co-authority with God. Okay, 
Jewish encyclopedia here. It says, the sons of God and children of God are applied also to Israel as a people and to all members of the human race. Yet the term by no means carries the idea of physical descent form, from an essential unity with God the Father. The Hebrew idiom conveys nothing further than a simple expression of God-likeness. In fact, the term son of God is rarely used in Jewish literature in the sense of Messiah. Now, I couldn't disagree more. But what I want you to see is that in a Jewish mind, what's going through their head. And so when we go to a Jew and we're talking about Jesus being the Son of God, that is one of the most offensive things that you could ever say to them. We can go and talk to them about Passover. We can even use names like, hey, Yeshua died for you, and use their name for Jesus. They don't care because the biggest stumbling block for a Jew to get over, for them to see, is this thing right here. Can you have two authorities? Can Jesus be God? This is so important, it has to be addressed before they will even listen to anything else you're going to say. This is why the author of Hebrews is coming out of the gate trying to say, listen, you have to see this. Okay? This whole idea in the encyclopedia here is responding to Christians who are saying that Jesus is God, that I agree with. Okay? Um, but, so it's a little more tempered than the, the Gemara is, but anyway, that's the whole point is they're discounting that whole concept. Let me show you some things from the Dead Sea Scrolls, fascinating stuff in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, just this last year I've been studying those more and more, and Wow, there's stuff in there I had no clue about. If you haven't heard me speak on the, the speaking in tongues, and in Acts 2, when that happened, and there were flames of fire coming off of their heads, I always thought that was a brand new concept. Not at all. It's talked about from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, by the way, were written and stored, they were written before Jesus came. There's stuff all over the Old Testament that explains the speaking, the, the, the flames of fire. Okay, uh, you can go, uh, we have a Creation Instruction Association podcast. You can go and listen to that podcast on tongues and you will, you'll hear that. I'm not going to talk about that tonight. But anyway, uh, there is part of the Dead Sea Scrolls that I think is called the, the flames of fire uh, fragments. So um, here it says this, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's also a fragment called the Son of God text. Okay, again, history, but it says this. It's, it's broken up, it's fragments, okay, Dead Sea Scrolls. It says, we'll be called great and will be designated by his name, Son of God. He shall be called and they will name him Son of the Most High. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1946. That's when we found them. They were put in there, you know, a long time prior to that. But uh, before Christ, like I said, this Son of God text, the Orthodox Jews, they explain this by saying this is talking about the Antichrist. What's fascinating is this sounds exactly like what the angel Gabriel says in the book of Luke. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
Then in verse 35 of Luke 1, that holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Almost the exact same thing we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls in what's called the Son of God text. There were Jews before Jesus came that should have been recognizing that when Jesus was calling himself the Son of God, this is him. This is the one we've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. The book of Enoch, like I said, the Apocrypha here, says in 105, verse 2, for I and my son will be united with them forever in the paths of uprightness in their lives, and ye shall have peace. Rejoice, ye children of uprightness. Okay, so here's an extra canonical book, canonical book that is also saying the same thing. It's confirming I and my son, the father and the son, are united and will be united with them. Okay. I think that's us, ultimately, the saints. Okay? He lives in us today. So there was plenty of, of clues to a Jew that Jesus, calling himself you know, God, his, his father, they wanted to stone him, but they should have known this stuff. Second Ezra is another part of the, the Apocrypha. says, For my son, the Messiah, shall be revealed to which those which are with him. Okay? So just another example of that. How about Daniel 3.25? Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Okay? There are breadcrumbs all over the place. Um, we see in Proverbs 30, verse 4, who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? It's everywhere. But you know what happened to the Jews? Is they thought they had it figured out. And so once you think you've got it figured out, you've got blinders on, and it, there are breadcrumbs everywhere, but you can't see them. I've been there. I have been there. Where I think I've got it figured out and what Scripture is saying, and then all of a sudden I realize, oh my goodness, how did I miss that? It's right there. That's what's going on here. Psalm 2.7, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2, verse 12. <clears throat> Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled, but a little blessed are those who put their trust in him. Now, the context of this here in Psalm is worship, by the way. Okay? And so it's saying, for you to be saved, you must put your faith in his son. Again, can you feel the weight of what the author of Hebrews is trying to cover here? When he is opening up this book and saying, God, who is, you know, the Son of God or, or the Father, he, you know, you could not be more controversial or in your face than what he started out in that very first verse of Hebrews. 
Let's do another verse, verse 2. We won't be as long on this one. But he, Jesus, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds. You know, in Matthew chapter 21, we read about the parable of the vineyard. And he sends his servants to check on the vineyards. And they kill the servants. And so he sends more. And he kills them. And finally, last of all, he sends his son because he thinks that they will, you know, respect his son. And that's kind of the picture that's being seen here. In these last days, last of all, He's going to send his son because he is the heir of all things. Remember, that's what the people said. Now he sent his, his son. Let us kill him because he's the heir. That's what that parable of the vineyards is talking about, this very thing in verse 2 here. Now, the word for worlds that's used there in Greek it can be translated as a universe or an age. Like it could be literally the ages. He made the ages as well as the, the physical world type thing. We're talking about somebody here who is powerful. He is God. What time is it here? 8.04. All right, I'm going to take maybe five more minutes here. Um, heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds okay the, let's look at that a little bit more John sixteen fifteen. I have up here it says all things that the father has are mine again couldn't be more controversial whatever he has it's mine and that's exactly what Hebrews 1, 2 is saying here. Okay? Um, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Okay, the bomb was dropped declaring that Jesus was the Son of God in verse 1. And now he's dropping this other bomb saying he created everything. Basically saying he's the one. In these first two verses, one bomb, then a second. Okay? Then a third with the Trinity, in, in essence. Because how can Jesus be creator if God did that? Didn't God create? Well, I think in the church we've done a pretty good job of explaining you know, that Jesus is the Word of God. And how did God create? He spoke. Let there be. The Word was what created everything. John 1, 1 through 3, you know, all things were made through him. Nothing was made without him. He was with God in the beginning. Okay, so we understand that, I think, pretty well in the church that, yeah, Jesus is the creator. But again, to the Jew, by him saying, through whom? Through Jesus, he created everything, was another punch in the face to them. Um. I'm going to read to you here from the Encyclopedia of Judaism here again. And uh, it says this, just to show you how uh, awful this would sound to a Jew. 
what, what the author of Hebrews is saying. Applying our criteria, the answer is clear. Christianity is none of, in none of its form qualifies as either Judaism or its sibling. Okay, and it goes on to basically say this. I think sometimes we feel like Jews, we're really close. They just have to see that he's the Messiah. What a Jew sees is you guys are so far away from us, it's not, you're like Satan worshipers. Okay? We look at them and think, ah, oh, we're so close. They look at us and say, nope, you couldn't be further away. It's not a sibling. This idea of Christianity is so far away. And he goes on, he says, Christianity so changes each of the three basic elements of the narrative of Judaism that it's rightly viewed as a different religion. First of all, the God is very different. A triune divinity in one of the three uh, is a divine human being, Jesus, something inconceivable within normal Judaism. Okay? So above all, they're saying the largest difference between Christianity and Judaism is this trinity. And so again, the book of Hebrews is hitting the most important topic that could be addressed right out of the gate. Because he's saying that Jesus, Yeshua, in front of a Jew, you know, as I said, saying Yeshua, Jesus, in front of a Jew doesn't endear you to them. Do you know Martin Luther, when he uh, first started, really, he had a lot of good things to say about the Jews. Then towards the end, and maybe sometime I'll share this with you, towards the end, he wrote something called, a tract called On the Jews and Their Lies. And it was, if I read it to you, you'd think Hitler wrote it. He says, take limb and life, take their gold and their silver, all of these things. Okay? Matter of fact, in the Nuremberg trials, Martin Luther, they quoted him to try and justify what they did in the concentration camps. Okay? I, I've got the, I can show you some other time on the Jews and their lies, but Bottom line is this, what happened? I don't know for sure, we really don't know, but I suspect that at first what Martin Luther wanted was he was hoping that he would be able to share the gospel with them and that they would listen and that they would come to know Christ. But what happened is they didn't. And as a result, he said, okay, yep, they are lost. I'm going to propose something to you. Do you think that maybe the reason the Jews never listened to you share the gospel was because all they could see was demonic? You're telling them that you have, you have a Jesus who got rid of the Old Testament. You worship a Jesus who breaks the Sabbath. You worship a Jesus who is a trinity, and you haven't explained that to me, that one of the reasons that they never accepted the gospel was because we were offering to them a Gentile Jesus, not a biblical Jewish one. And we'll, we'll talk maybe more about that some other time, but that really hit me here maybe three, four, five months back, and I just thought, wow. No wonder, we're, we're speaking two complete different languages. And here the author of Hebrews is saying, 
this is, this is why I'm starting with this. He was all but pleading with them to see Jesus is the Messiah. And he's gonna, that's what this book is going to be about. He is going to just do one thing right after another saying, he's the one. He is the one. Let me show you. Let me prove it to you. That's the goal of this book of Hebrews. You're going to see that. I'll uh, just give you one more quote, and then we're going to quit here. Um, here's uh, probably, Tovia Singer is probably the biggest or most influential uh, Jewish rabbi today. Okay? It could be argued he's probably the most influential. Not a believer. Okay? Does not believe in Jesus as Messiah. He says this, I always wondered why Christians have a, a visceral reaction when the core principles of their faith are questioned. They might laugh off annoying atheists, but they glower at the former Christians who urge them to choose the Jewish faith. I thought about this conundrum for the past 30 years. I can't count the number of people that I watched return to God during this time. Hashem, the name, God, redeemed so many from the church in recent years. How sad. He's saying God has redeemed people, Christians, out of the church. I know some of those people. That's sad. He goes on, as it turns out, I have never been a Christian. As such, I studied this phenomenon as a, det a detached observer. This, I believe, has been to my advantage. On most occasions, people do not leave the church in an instant. Rather, there's a transitional period where Christians begin to apprehend that something may be asked in the church. They begin to grasp that many of its core teachings are doubtful. They let go one finger at a time, and there's a gradual process of awareness. Frequently, this informal investigation and probing begins by calling into question the long-enduring doctrine of the Trinity. Their departure from the church spirals from there. Not only is this an issue for Jews, but when people start talking about this and you really start studying it, he's saying Christians have doubts about it. And Christians leave the church because of it. That's how important this topic is. That's how important this issue of the Trinity is. Okay? Now, I understand there's different ways that we can think about it, but bottom line is the Orthodox don't do math like we do. They see God as one. We see God as one. One plus one plus one equals one. They just can't see how one plus one plus one doesn't equal three. Okay? Now, I admit I don't understand all of it, but I can tell you this, the scriptures are so clear about it. And I think to some extent, it's a semantic thing, okay? But um, I, I just want you to understand how important of an issue this really is, okay? Next week, I will show you a little bit more of scripture that is going to absolutely prove positive, you know, that what Hebrews is saying is backed up all over the scriptures, okay, in regards to this uh, triune God.